This morning we come to Matthew chapter 6, a passage that deals with one of the most basic and fundamental acts that we do as a Christian. It deals with the issue of giving, of generosity, which is fundamental to a Christian. It's fundamental to us to begin with because we are children of God and God himself is a giver. We're told in James 1 verse 5 that God gives generously to all people. Later on in verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights. So it is, it is understandable that we would expect from God's children, therefore, that they too would have this same kind of generous spirit, that they too would want to be givers like our Heavenly Father is, givers, or is a giver. It's a natural part of who we are when we come to know Christ. We are eager to give, we're sensitive to needs, we want to give attention to this in our life, in our prayers, in our budgets, in our thoughts, and all of those things, because this is the way God deals with us, and this is who God is. It's not surprising then that we learn from Scripture in 2 Corinthians 9 that God loves a cheerful giver. God is eager for us to be generous. He wants us to, to contribute to the needs of the ministry and to the, needs of, to the needs of the saints. He tells us even in James 1.27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one, oneself unstained from the world. And we looked at this a number of months ago in detail, to visit widows and orphans isn't just to pay a trip of hospitality, but it is, to, it is to support and to come alongside of them in their times of need. So giving is, it's, it's, it's central to what we are and what we do as a religion. It defines so much of the way we conduct our lives. It's something that's fundamental to us as Christians. We give, we take offerings, we make uh, contributions all the time for all sorts of things. It's not a shock to hear. Lots of people would associate churches and charities and things like that with offerings, with gifts. But what may surprise you, what may surprise a lot of people, is that so many of those gifts and so many of those acts of charity at the end of the day, are worthless. They're useless, empty, vain. At least by God's estimation, they are. It might surprise you to hear that, but that's what Jesus tells us in this passage this morning. That there is so much that goes under the name of religion and so much that goes under the name of righteousness so much that goes under the name of generosity and charity and giving and all those things that at the end of the day is really, really useless. Even for you, if people praise you for your generosity and they commend you for your charity and they highlight uh, how you give, they may tell you 
that you're making a difference here and there, but God looks at it all and he sees the worthlessness of it if God looks at it all and it is nothing but an external act. That is to say, it's done with the wrong motive. And it's not a matter whether it's just giving or praying or fasting or serving or evangelizing or, or any of those things. No matter what the external act is, God says it is worthless in His eyes if it's done for the wrong reason, if it's done, we might say, for self-glory. And so this morning, we come to this section of Matthew, this section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, a section that deals with doing the right things for the right reasons. It deals with the issue of motives. It deals with the issue of your heart in these kind of religious duties. In fact, we're going to spend some time in the next few weeks thinking about this topic as a whole, doing the right things for the right reasons, kind of grouping, if you will, a number of sermons under that title. Or we could just sort of call it all a a series about who gets the glory. Because this is really what it's all about. This is really the question that's at the heart of what Jesus is teaching in the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. He spells out a principle in verse 1 and then he goes on to apply it to the issue of various religious duties, to the issue of giving, to the issue of praying, to the issue of fasting, all the way down through verse 18. And in the middle of it, really a, a kind of an interlude a parenthesis, if you will, where Jesus teaches us in more depth about prayer itself. He gives us the Lord's Prayer. So there are kind of four parts, if you will, to this whole section, these, these three duties of prayer and giving and fasting with an interlude on prayer, and we're going to look at each one of them in the coming weeks, but all of them falling under this broader rubric of doing the right things for the right reasons. I want to begin this morning just by reading for us from this entire passage from verse 1 all the way down through verse 18 so we can understand where Jesus is going with all this. He says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him pray then like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Here you can hear the theme that runs all the way through this passage. Really, it's a theme that runs all the way through the sermon. It's a theme about genuine faith, genuine righteousness, genuine Christianity, we would even say. This sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples is really all about helping them understand the kind of religion, the kind of righteousness that God accepts. The kind which Jesus says back in chapter 5, verse 20, has to be different from the righteousness they they would find among their scribes and Pharisees of the day. A different kind of righteousness, a different kind of religion, you might say. And the difference that Jesus is highlighting is not so much a, a difference of doctrine. It's not even really a difference of activity. But in these verses, the difference that he's talking about is a difference of the heart. It's a difference of the inner person. You might engage in all the same activities. You might be involved with all the same sort of uh, duties, the same sort of acts of goodness and charity. You might go along with all the worship and all of the Bible studies and all that other stuff. You might engage in all of those same things, and yet... What Jesus is telling us is that true religion and true righteousness will only be found with those who have true hearts as they engage with all this. And he focuses on three duties to help us understand this, the the duty of giving, the duty of prayer, and the duty of fasting. These, which, by the way, came to be known among Judaism as the three pillars of Judaism, when when uh, Israel had been scattered uh, from the Babylonian captivity to uh, distant lands, and even even as they reoccupied Israel, not everyone returned. And when they rebuilt the temple and reinstituted sacrifices, people were still scattered throughout the ancient world, and they were looking for ways, if you will, to practice their faith, things that they thought were essential when they couldn't go to the temple every day and they couldn't make a sacrifice every day. And so many of them looked to these things, prayer, fasting, and alms as the primary means of earning their salvation. For example, the book of Tobit Late um, in the second century B.C., the book of Tobit, uh, chapter 12, verse 8 says, Prayer with fasting is good, but better than both is 
almsgiving with righteousness, for almsgiving saves from death and purges away every sin, end quote. This, is what's, this was looked at as essential for a first century Jew. These kinds of duties defined their religion in so many ways in their minds, particularly those who, as I said, wouldn't have had access to the temple. So for them to hear the words of Christ then and to hear that basically everything that they are doing from a religious standpoint has no significance in God's eyes in heaven would have been a real shock to them. But what Jesus is describing to them, while it may not be necessarily different duties, while it may not be necessarily different activities than what they're used to hearing, what he's describing to them is definitely definitely a different religion. It's a different kind of faith. It might look the same on the outside. It might perform similar acts and similar deeds, but from God's perspective... These are very different kinds of acts, very different kind of religion. And what separates the two of them is what is in the heart of the individual, what motivates their heart when it comes to issues like giving and issues like prayer and issues like fasting. Now, we can see this in the first four verses as we focus our attention this morning on the issue of giving for the right reason, the issue of giving for the right reason. And, and Jesus lays it out here in two contrasting motives, if you will. The first one in verses 1 and 2 is giving for public pretense. Giving for public pretense. And he gives us the warning there in verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of that kind of pretentious uh, motive and pretentious behavior. And it's, it's applied first to the issue of giving, but, but really this is the principle that governs everything he says, particularly in the next 18 verses. The issue is warning you not to do things, even good things, even noble things, even devotional things. Don't do those things for the wrong reasons. It's a warning for you not to be ignorant, not to be naive, not to overlook this possibility, the real possibility that you or, or in fact, anyone could be doing the things that you're doing, but doing it for the wrong reasons. He uses the word beware, which is basically a word for paying close attention to something and And that's basically what he means here. Don't ignore the fact that this is a reality. Don't pretend that this doesn't happen. Don't be naive about it. Don't think that this doesn't take place all the time. All around you. People doing good things. People doing religious things. But for the wrong reasons. Not as if you and I would know what's in the hearts of other people. Not as if you and I can tell conclusively when folks are doing this or not, but we shouldn't be naive about the fact that it takes place all the time. It had been a perpetual problem in Israel's history, man-made religion, false religion, even within Judaism. 
as they practice their, if you will say, their biblical structures of worship. God says in Isaiah chapter 1, you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. He talks about their sacrifices as being something that he doesn't ask for, something he doesn't desire, even though they were prescribed in his word, he says. The blood of bulls and goats, they're worthless to him when they're offered with the wrong motive. And you could multiply this literally times billions and billions of good deeds that are done through years and years and years of religion all around the world throughout all time, acts of prayer, displays of charity, religious devotion, all kinds of sacrifice, all of these things at the end of the day are nothing more than one long parade of human pride. And Jesus says there's a danger that you and I will not stop to deeply consider that. That we wouldn't be aware of that. That somehow we would be duped into thinking that all this stuff that's taking place around us, not just in a local level, but all this stuff that's taking, around, uh, 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 taking place around us around the world, all this stuff that's taking place in all these other forms of religion, that all of that stuff is somehow coming from a pure heart. That would be naive. That would be foolish to not be aware of what's actually taking place. We can't pretend that it's not a thing. So he says, beware of doing this. Beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people to be seen by them. Now you might say, well, if that's a danger, if that's something I need to be aware of, how do I do that? I mean, is that supposed to mean that I do everything in secret? Am I supposed to then try to keep everyone from really seeing my spiritual life? Am I supposed to somehow take my religious life and, and bury it somehow? Certain people would come to that conclusion. They would think that it's almost wrong for you to talk about your spiritual life, your convictions, your devotion, your worship, or your doctrine, or any of those things, as if those kind of matters are so personal they should never be public. But we have to remember back in chapter 5, verse 16, when Jesus told us back there, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So in other words, there's, a, there's an alternative danger that you also have to be aware of here, the danger of hiding your faith, the danger of not practicing your faith, the danger of... of Shrinking back from genuine expressions, genuine prayer in public places, genuine worship, uh, genuine uh, acts of devotion, giving even, worshiping, uh, uh, evangelizing, all of those things. You could shrink back from all of that out of fear that someone might reject you, but that too would be erroneous. You have to understand that the key danger, whether it is in chapter 5, verse 16, or whether it's in chapter 6, verse 1, the key danger is the same thing, a focus on yourself. That's the problem. 
The problem is a focus on yourself, whether it's in chapter 5, verse 16, you're focused on your own self-preservation, on protecting yourself from criticism and protecting yourself from persecution. And so you shrink back because you just want to watch out for yourself. Or in chapter 6, verse 1, when it's a concern with self-promotion, gathering praise for yourself, grandstanding, trying to put yourself on display, trying to impress other people with your moral qualities. So whether it is wanting to protect yourself or whether it's wanting to promote yourself, there's a danger that exists at, at every level, the level of your motive most importantly, and you have to guard against it. There is, Jesus is telling us, there is a form of religion that is built on both of these kinds of selfish motives. The difference then between letting your light shine and, your, and doing deeds in order to be seen by others, the difference really comes down to your desire, or I should say the desire for glory. Who are you trying to magnify? Who are you trying to build up? Who is getting ultimately the glory out of your behavior? Who will people walk away talking about? Who will people go away thinking about? This is really at the heart of everything Jesus is saying here. This is at the heart of all of his warnings is who gets the glory? Who gets the glory when, for example, you give? Who are people talking about when you make a contribution? Who are people going away rejoicing in when that happens? Who are people primarily giving their thanks to? And Jesus directs it, particularly in verse 2, at this issue of giving. He says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. A lot of people have discussed what exactly he's talking about here, as if you know, people literally carried trumpets around with them. We have no historical record that that ever took place, that this was ever sort of a, a, a habit or a tradition in Israel that anyone would ever be so brass as, uh, brash as to do such a thing. But Jesus might be using this, we might say colloquially, as we would say, don't toot your own horn. Or... He might be making reference to the sound that is made when people would throw their coins into horn-shaped collection boxes that were spread throughout the temple and placed in their synagogues. There were in the temple 13 of these horn-shaped receptacles. They called them shofar boxes. Shofar is basically a word for a horn. They were designed this way in order to sort of discourage people from trying to reach into the boxes and pilfer out of them. They sort of funneled down into a hole, but they had the byproduct of, of uh, when you tossed your coins in there, the shape of the receptacle would actually project the sound of the coins as they went into the boxes. And so... And so people would throw their coins into these shofar boxes and they would rattle around as they went down into the hole and actually trumpet out uh, 
the sound of your contribution to everyone standing by, they could literally hear whether it was just a few clangs of a coin or whether it was a whole bunch of clangs. Apparently, these receptacles were everywhere, and Jesus may very well be saying to these guys, don't be all about sounding these trumpets. Don't be all about fostering your own sort of glory, your own reputation, garnering your own praise, being built up as the big giver, the great generous person, the esteemed and the attention that you would gather from that really all directed at your own pride, not really motivated by the glory of God and far less concerned that people go away thinking about God as much as that they're thinking about you. He's saying these hypocrites, they they didn't want people primarily thinking magnificently about how God provides. They wanted people to think and focus on how they, as a contributor, had provided for them. This was, by the way, not just not just something that was true in Judaism. It was really all over the ancient world. In fact, it was promoted within within Greek society to um, an almost ostentatious level. Uh, archaeologists are still discovering all the time pillars and monuments that patrons from the Greek and Roman world would inscribe to themselves whenever they made some great contribution in some sort of civic cause or religious cause, and they would demand that a pillar or a monument be set up in their name. In some cases, they would even want at the, the seat of their local amphitheater, they would want their name inscribed on their stone where they sat as a reminder and announcement to everyone that they contributed to that particular project. And this stuff, while it existed in Greek and Roman societies, was was not thwarted at the uh, at the border with Israel. In fact, it was it was uh, if you will whitewashed. It was accepted. It was it was decoded and uh, sort of presented in a religious form within Judaism. These kinds of people, whenever you don't acknowledge what they do, when you don't give them the proper glory and praise, they either turn away in offense, upset, or they make it clear that their gifts are conditional. And if they don't get the kind of recognition they're looking for, the gifts will cease. The whole issue of client-patron, which was a big deal in the ancient world, Everyone had a sense of who their patron was, and people had a sense of who their clients were. And you were supposed to remember to always make the proper acknowledgement of your patron. It was expected. Well, Jesus confronts all that. That stuff that exists in the world, that stuff that exists in all these other religious structures, all these other sort of charitable acts, all that stuff, it has no place before God. In fact, Jesus describes the ones who do that as hypocrites, which you may know this word was basically a word 
for those actors on the stage who would wear masks that had sort of exaggerated features to accentuate various aspects of the character they were playing. And so Jesus is basically calling these people actors of a sort. And he's telling you, don't be like the actors. Don't be like the pretenders. Don't be like those who want to exaggerate their role in whatever's taking place. These scribes and Pharisees who had defined religious life by these pillars wanted to accentuate these things because it was really all about them, all about their glory. Jesus describes them in Matthew 15, 7 as hypocrites who he says, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They do all these outward acts because while they are honoring God in an outward way, while they're showing some sort of outward religious expression, their hearts are far from God. Far from God. Or Matthew 23 describes them. He says they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. That is to say, they they wore these special clothes as they went around that, that actually had all these fancy sort of decorations and markings. And one of the things they would do is they would make their fringes long, these tassels, which, by the way, the Old Testament were uh, commanded Jews to sew into the fabric of their garments these tassels that were to hang from their garments as reminders of how they were bound to the commandments of God. But the Pharisees and the scribes took this and actually lengthened those tassels to an exaggerated level, to a, a gaudy, ridiculous level, made them long and broad and had them dangle all the way down to the ground, basically to, to imply that they were more interested than everyone else in the commandments of God. They wanted to put it on display. They wanted to make sure everyone knew that they were more serious about this. They had phylacteries, which were ornaments they would put on their forehead, literally little boxes that they would affix to their forehead. And inside the box would be tiny rolled up little scrolls with the commandments of God. And they would put them on their forehead and on their, on their arms. You can still see them today. If you go to Israel or if you're in a, in a particular Orthodox community, you still see Jews wearing these little boxes around on their heads. And they would make these things large and gaudy to make sure everyone saw them, to make sure everyone looked their way and knew that they were the ones to be looked up to. He goes on, Jesus says, to say that they loved respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They loved being called rabbi by others. They loved the best seats in the synagogues. That is to say they wanted to be acknowledged. They wanted to be looked to. They wanted to be respected. When they went to the synagogue, they wanted to be offered the best seats. They wanted to be, they wanted to be uh, 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 considered to be leaders in the synagogues. They were benches on the side and the best seats were, were normally the ones on the benches and particularly the ones at the top of the bench, sort of above the fray. Uh, everyone else would sit down on the floor. But these guys expected to be offered a seat 
on the bench or above everyone else. They wanted to be esteemed. This was, this was their religious life. It was all about recognition. It was all about finding praise of others. We, of course, don't have all those traditions, but we certainly have our own forms where people put these same motives on display all the time, people seeking prestige. And people, I guess these days we call it virtue signaling, where they're always wanting to kind of prove to everyone else how virtuous they are, how, how better they are, how moral, morally superior they are. They want the prestige. They want to impress other people. Even sometimes shame other people in a kind of intimidation game. They're not explicitly saying, look at me, look how obviously morally superior I am. They're not saying those words explicitly, but by their actions, sometimes by their words, they try to position themselves above everyone else. They're even very skilled at not saying the inappropriate thing, never being explicit about their demand for attention. If you question them, they would be aghast that you would say such a thing. But how carefully they curate their moral reputation all the time. Their spiritual reputation. People do all kinds of things. Carry a big Bible all tattered. I remember in in college this guy that had this massive, just massive Bible that looked like it had been read 10,000 times over the leaves were all the pages were all torn and all that stuff and he would always kind of take that thing to church and one day his roommate told me that he never opens it in fact he says he dropped it in a puddle one time and it got so waterlogged the thing just kind of expanded and now he carries it around like he reads it all the time people do those kinds of things they want to be seen They want to boast about, uh, they want to boast or they want to post about their quiet times, about their Bible reading, about whatever they're, they're doing for the Lord. They want to be seen and pictured as the ideal family, the ideal husband, the ideal wife, the ideal parent. They want everyone to notice how wonderful they are or how they have their chart all put together and their kids are all in line and there's not a spot on them and every hair has been combed over and, and, and they, they bring that whole parade in and they're scanning the room to make sure everyone notices that their kids are in line. What they're really all about is their own praise. Spiritual grandstanding taking place all the time. It's not about the glory of God. It's about your own glory. It's about your own exaltation. And Jesus is saying this is grotesque to God. Don't be unaware when it happens. And particularly with this issue of giving. People want to parade that. Jesus tells them in verse 2, I say to you, you have received your reward. When you get this praise from other people, you've got your reward. Or back in verse 1, you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Those who are motivated by impressing others with their moral, spiritual, uh, moral superiority, their spiritual superiority. If that's in their heart, Jesus says, you have received 
your reward. Which, by the way, is not an encouragement. He's not giving you a pathway to seek reward. What he's suggesting is this is nothing you should seek. This is a kind of a paltry return on your investment. It's going to be, in other words, a disappointment in the end. You're expecting some sort of long-term benefit, some sort of long-term return, but you've already booked all of your returns. The moment people look at you and the moment people gaze at you. And it's not ultimately going to satisfy your craving for approval and your craving for attention or whatever it might be. Because what you have in terms of your need is too deep than what any other person can provide. And but the implication that Jesus has here is whatever public recognition you receive from these boastful acts, it's not going to be considered enough. And it most certainly is not going to be enough to get you into heaven. It's not going to be enough to make any difference with God. There's going to be no reward with God. This is what the righteousness, excuse me, the righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees were after. This is what they thought was going on. When they, when they did all of these acts, when they gave, when they prayed, when they fasted, when they did their, their uh, uh, acts of worship, their acts of service, they, they assume that God was looking at all of this stuff and he was keeping some sort of record and he, he, would, uh, he would give them in return for all of their deeds, and Jesus is saying that this is worthless. If it's not coming from the right heart. The problem is, of course, none of us, none of us can ever fully know that our motives are right. That they're pure. Even when you make your best efforts to have the right hearts, the Scripture warns us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. So don't read what Jesus is saying here, some sort of prescription to continue to do these things but just do them better and then somehow you're going to get a reward from God. That's really not the point here. The point is, that when your focus is off of God, when your focus is on other people, you just need to realize there's going to be an empty reward. It's going to be an empty reward. That takes us to the next contrast that Jesus makes here, the contrast with a different kind of religious devotion, a different kind of righteousness, really a different kind of religion when he calls us in verses 3 and 4 to a kind of giving that comes from private piety. Giving from private piety. Verse 3, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is an image, an indelible image that we know even to our own time, that is an image for something that is as secret as possible. Two hands, we know, obviously are controlled by the same brain. So for one of them not even to know what the other is doing is, is requiring such complete secrecy. That is the point. 
Some suggest that the image is that we, shouldn't, that we should keep the, the secret even from ourselves, if that were possible. I don't know if that is possible, but it certainly means that we should not be patting ourselves on the back. We shouldn't be doing these things and going around applauding ourselves, and we certainly shouldn't be looking for applause from other people. Let your giving be as discreet as possible. Now, there are all kinds of opportunities to give. I mean, there are people that specialize in, in how, how to get you to give. There are people who specialize in how to get uh, funds for your organization. They will come in and they will push every button and they will move every lever and they will turn every knob. They know what moves the, motivates the natural heart of man and they will appeal to all kinds of sort of personal gratification. But what Jesus is calling for here is something totally different. He's calling on a kind of, a kind of religion that, that arises and exists in your heart and has nothing to do with anyone apart from you and God. And so when you realize that there is a need, you realize that there is a needy person or some, uh, some ministry in need or whatever it is, you evaluate the sacrifice that you need to make, you make a determination to contribute to that need, you make that con- contribution and then that is it. You forget as quickly as possible because the most satisfying kind of giving is the kind of giving which is done and forgotten. It's done and forgotten. In fact, this is the picture that Jesus gives later on in Matthew chapter 25. It's a beautiful picture when you really think about it. When we are standing before God in heaven and he says to you, Blessed are you, for when I was thirsty, you gave me drink, and when I was hungry, you gave me food, and when I was unclothed, you clothed me. And the blessed saints say, when did I do that? When in the world did I do that? They had already forgotten those acts of kindness. They had already forgotten all of those gifts. They weren't able to make the immediate connection in their head. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I, get, I remember giving that glass of water. I remember giving that gift. It was just the natural course of their life. They did it. They forgot about it. But the Lord doesn't forget about it. Every one of those gifts, the Scripture says, when you give to the poor, you're giving to the Lord. When you give to the needy, you're giving to the Lord. You're investing in His kingdom all kinds of ways, but you're also, hopefully, forgetting about it. Jesus says, when your Father, who sees all of this in secret, He sees it and He will reward you. Again, this is not some promise of eternal eternal salvation. He's not saying that the reward is going to be the forgiveness of your sins. The reward is, in other words, not heaven. That's not what the reward is. In fact, if you look back at verse 1, he talks about the reward from your Father 
who is in heaven, or really could be translated instead of from, it could be translated with. Your reward is with your Father in heaven. In that case, he's saying when you're doing this from the wrong motive, it's not. When you get down to the end of verse 4, he's saying when you do it with the right motive, it will be. It'll be with him. Future tense, by the way, probably suggesting that you in many ways won't see even the benefits of that in this life. It's a future reality so many times. The Lord does provide. We give to Him. He gives to us more, and then we turn around and give that. That, that is the cycle, we're told, happens in reaping and sowing. But we're also told that in many ways those rewards await us in the life to come. Your Father who's in heaven, He sees all of these little acts. He remembers all of them. And if you've given them for the right motive, if you haven't sort of looked for the flash of praise in the moment, if you haven't settled for the temporary, empty, vain praise of men, He assures you there's a reward that's being stored up in heaven. You know, we know that there's going to be a a time of reward for Christians. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about it. There's going to be a judgment that we face before the seat of Christ when our deeds are going to be examined and some of them are going to be determined to be wood, hay, and stubble. Useless in God's eyes. But some of them are going to be precious metal. Gold and silver, able to be tested by the fire and standing the test. God says he's going to give those to us. You know, I really believe that those are gifts of stewardship. Scripture tells us if you're faithful with little, God will entrust you with much. I really believe that those rewards are going to be responsibilities in his kingdom. They're going to be stewardships that he gives to us there. But gives to us only because he knows that we will use them for his kingdom and for his glory. That's the kind of people he's looking for. All of this, of course, assumes that you'll be in his kingdom. All of this, of course, assumes that you will be welcomed into heaven It assumes that you have the kind of righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees that he talked about back in verse 20. It assumes that you have understood the call that he gave to us in chapter 5, verse 48. That you have a kind of righteousness that is perfect. Remember, we talked about this last week. He talks about a kind of love that's perfect. That's a, that's a capacity that really goes beyond you to have a perfect love. It's a capacity that goes beyond you to have a perfect righteousness. You know, it's really a capacity that goes beyond you to even have a perfect record of giving and prayer and fasting and all those things. It's all beyond you. It's nothing you can produce and muster in yourself, it is all something that has to come from God. 
But the message throughout this entire sermon is this. While you will find all of this call really beyond your own capacity, God who is in heaven has his own perfect righteousness and he pours it into your heart when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you receive him, he pours out his love in your heart. He pours out his righteousness in your heart. He pours out even his generosity into your heart. And what you find is God transforms you from someone who has been doing all of these deeds and all these acts, all this behavior just to be looked on by other people. Now, standing before God as someone who has received his perfect righteousness. Now you just simply give out of the abundance of what he's poured into you. The abundance of your heart. This is where the kind of religion Jesus talks about comes from. This is where the sincere motives come from. They come from a transformed heart. The transformed heart he's talked about over and over and over again. And of course, the challenge for you here this morning is if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if your religion has been nothing but sort of practiced before men, that you wouldn't leave here today with that same kind of empty religion, thinking that those rewards are worth anything before God, but that you would understand that the only way to ever be received by God is when you confess yourself as vain and prideful and consumed with your own glory and seeking your own things and not attentive enough to God and His kingdom and His glory. You ask the Lord for forgiveness for the kind of life you've lived and you receive that forgiveness from His gracious, generous heart. You do that and the Lord makes you not only a gracious giver, makes you a child of God. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time, thankful for this word. We pray that you would use it to transform us out of those who are molded to the external religion of this world and into those who are transformed to the genuine worshipers that you see and you delight in. Lord, we want to have true, authentic, pure motives, pure hearts and hearts that please you. So Lord, I pray that you would continually be making us aware of these dangers, rescuing us from the pitfalls of our own pride. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.